0: Cameron, thank you for taking your shoes off. You know, this is a kind of, that kind of service. I appreciate that. Either that or it's like a James Taylor concert. Either, either, either way. I would, have, I, I would have taken my shoes off too, but let's not go crazy. We're going to take a look, continue the series in terms of encountering Jesus, looking at the story of um, a very interesting encounter. And it's quite unusual in its uh, context, and it's unusual in its outcome, uh, not in terms of the scriptures, but in terms of how the, the encounter unfolds. But before we get to that, I have an important question for you. Let me, before I pose this question, give you a quote from Stephen Hawkins, one of my favorite people. This man has more quotes that I love to use. This is one of them. He says, I wrote an article called Atheists for Jesus. The point of the article was that Jesus was a great moral teacher, and I was suggesting that somebody as intelligent as Jesus would have been an atheist today if he had known what we know. <laughs> now, I'm not going to ask you to agree or disagree with Stephen, but it begs a very interesting question How smart is Jesus? Or maybe just a basic question Is Jesus smart? No? You've got about thirty seconds to discuss this with your with your neighbor. Come to a conclusion. Would you say that Jesus is smart? Based on how we would define smart. Okay, go ahead, you got thirty seconds. Okay. Time's up. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or shout out answer. Just in terms of your discussion, your own thinking, is Jesus smart? A group of college professors were actually asked this question at a very conservative college. And you know what the primary answer was? No. These were answered by engineering professors, economists, psychologists, professors in the med school. Professors in the School of Sociology, Music, Art, Education, because they were stuck in the vein of smart is over here and Jesus is over there. Now, let's be willing to admit that sometimes we do the same thing. We put Jesus over here in like a spiritual box and then everything else goes in this box over here my job, my family, my kids, driving a car stuff right and somehow in our own minds we think those don't meet very much but really at the core of it is a question does jesus know stuff about this stuff over in this box does he know anything about raising kids does he know anything about engineering does he know anything about changing spark plugs does he know any of that stuff i hope by the end of the evening you will have thought that through and you'll see how that fits in terms of where we're going turn with me to luke chapter 7 As we read God's word, let's ask the Holy Spirit to come now. Spirit of the living God, move over us. Grab hold of our hearts. Convert and transform our understanding. Shape us through the power of your word tonight. That Jesus would be glorified and honored in our thoughts, our minds, our lives, everything about us. Thank you so much. Amen. This is beginning uh, chapter 7 of Luke. Luke writes this. There was a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly, who was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this thing, because he loves our nation and has even built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. This is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith, even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Now there is an interesting story. For all kinds of reasons. And tonight, we're just going to kind of tiptoe through the reasons i'm going to let the holy spirit speak to you about what does it mean to you what does it mean to us for this account to have transpired before us and that the holy spirit would include it in the scriptures now i have to tell you over in matthew there's a slightly different variant on this story where it looks like the man the centurion comes and actually speaks with jesus most bible scholars say that that's just um, matthew's way of sort of reframing it for his particular audience and that actually he probably did send these folks but Uh, If you you jump over to Matthew 8, you'll find a slightly different, uh, some spins on it. But the outcome is identical. Jesus actually goes into more detail, and I'll tell you that in just a minute, in terms of his response to this. But let's let's just take a look at this. What is actually happening here? Because, you know, this is a very important story to appear twice in the Gospels. It's important enough for the Holy Spirit to want us to figure out what is happening here. So here we have a man. Who is a what? The Bible describes him as a centurion, but what is that? What is that? Historians? He was a soldier. And what kind of soldier? A Roman soldier, a commander, an officer. Now get this. He's living in the country that his forces are occupying. Jesus is one of the people being occupied by his army, his country, his nation. And he represents that nation to these people. So he's not Jewish. He's Roman. And he's not even connected faith-wise to this whole faith tradition. He's from a completely different worldview altogether. And not only that, he didn't actually live here. He has been transplanted from his home country into this place. This is not his home. And these people, they're not his people. They're just, he's just there to kind of keep things in order, make sure things go the way they're supposed to go. So here we have this opening account, a centurion servant. And it tells it says in in the expanded version of the Bible, it says the man had a bond servant. Now, interesting thing about bond servants, those were men and women who were actually set free. The person who had possession of them actually came and said, I release you. You are free. If we look into the Old Testament, we see this described. It tells us that those servants loved the people they served so much that they said, tell you what, I would prefer to stay your servant for the rest of my life. And they would actually take them to the door frame of the home, and they would take an awe, and they would pierce their ear with it, signifying that you were attached to this family by the piercing of the ear. And then they would spend the rest of their lives in voluntary servitude because of their love for that family or their love for that person or their love for what they were doing. And this is the kind of man that this Roman officer is concerned about. It's not just some guy that's working in his house. This is a person that he has a very close relationship with, that he highly values, and this man has chosen to stay in his home. So it's, it's like family to him. And so we see the circumstances that he's, he's at death's door. And then Jesus doesn't, this interior does a very interesting thing. He understands the ways of this country, doesn't he? He knows that he's a Gentile, and this guy, Jesus, and all these other guys, they are Jews. He knew enough about their customs and their traditions to realize what should he never do. What should he never do? Well, he should never invite them into his house, and he should never go to their house. Gentiles, you just didn't, that was a very strong Judaic law. You just didn't mix. And so he was sensitive enough to understand it's better for me not even to go. And so he gets people he knows in the area where he is, and he sends them, these rulers of the synagogue, and they go on his behalf. Now I want you to notice their tact. They come to Jesus, and they say what? Please come heal his servant. Why? He's a good guy. But not just a good guy. What kind of guy? He's a guy that's actually done stuff for us. Look at all the cool stuff he's done. He like... He helped build the synagogue. He supports the Jews. He's really a nice guy. He's affluent. This is the kind of guy you should help. We should be on his good side. Jesus, work with us. I mean, do you kind of get that under, undertone? It's like, hey, hey, this guy deserves to be saved. I, I, I remember I was stationed in Korea, and there was a guy that a lot of the Christians, this guy was just like, he was a powerful man. He was just a fabulous speaker. He was a pagan through and through. But we would pray for him, oh, Jesus, if you could, like, save that guy. Wow, what the cool stuff he could do. Do you realize that's not in God's priority list of the people he grabs hold of? It's not all the cool stuff we bring. As a matter of fact, you know what he's looking for? He's not looking for the really nice base. We see this metaphor later in the New Testament. What kind of vessel is he looking for? A broken one. As a matter of fact, those are the ones who realize they need Jesus. They understand their brokenness. And if you think you've got it all together, why even consider Jesus? So they actually come with kind of the wrong motives. Now, did he send them? Of course. But I think he actually sent them because he understood the people that should go and talk to Jesus. He's a Jewish rabbi. I should send people that understand how to talk to him. I don't think that he, the centurion, sent them with these kind of motives. But I believe the Jews that came as representatives of the synagogue, they had those motives. This is a great guy. Work with us. Interestingly enough, Jesus responds. He doesn't make any comment on it, doesn't give any commentary. He says, okay. And off he goes. And then we see later in the passage, he's not far from the place where the centurion is. The centurion doesn't send Jewish representatives this time. Who comes now? Friends of his. What's the difference between sending representatives from the synagogue and sending friends? What's the difference there? Think about that. He sends his friends and they come and they repeat, and I believe they repeat actually verbatim what the centurion says, and that's why I think Matthew actually says the centurion comes and speaks these words. I think they actually represent the exact words that he tells them to say. Say these words. Lord, don't trouble yourself. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. Now notice... Now it's shifted a little bit. Now it's not, it's not right for you to come under my roof. I don't deserve. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Now we're starting to look into the heart of the centurion himself. What kind of person was he? Why did he understand about who he was and who Jesus was? What did he know about how this whole relationship worked in terms of Jesus' presence there in this world that he was responsible for? Look, he goes on. He says, but, don't come, I'm not worthy, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. You can just stop wherever you are, just say the word, it'll be done. Now notice he doesn't say and put up a prayer for me and do something sacrificial. He just says what? Say the word. And it's done. Because here's what I understand. Now listen to this phrase very closely. Because I am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. Why didn't he say I'm a man with authority? Or I'm a man over other people. Or I'm a man who understands the big picture because I'm a CEO here. Why didn't he say he had authority? Why did he say he was a person under authority? I think we'll see why in just a moment. He goes on. He says, you know, I have soldiers under me. And then he goes to this whole very interesting little brief description of how authority works. Those in authority say, and things are done. And if you say something of this nature, it's accomplished. If you say something of that nature, it's accomplished. And it makes no difference who it is, whether it's a soldier or a servant, whoever is in his realm of authority. He very clearly describes this is the way authority hierarchies work. I understand that. Now, by telling this story, what is he saying about Jesus? What is he saying about Jesus? Why is he telling Jesus this story? Why is he using this description? Because he knows that not only does the centurion understand authority, Jesus does too. And I think, I believe that when the centurion says, I'm a man under authority, I think it was more than just his Roman authority. I think he was expressing something about his faith. I understand that I am not above God in this. Remember, I understand who you are. And I know that I'm actually under you. And all you have to do is say the word. I don't have the word for this situation, but you do. All you got to do is say it. Because I'm used to saying it, and it gets done, and I know you can too. Because this falls under your domain, your authority. That's why if you look in your notes, I think this passage is really not about the centurion. I think it's about the sovereignty of God. I think it's about the sovereignty of Jesus. The fact that he has all power, all authority. Everything, in fact, we find later in the, in the New Testament that all authority and power has been given to him. He holds it all. It's his. He laid it down to come, but then it was given back to him. And we find that even to the day of the judgment. He holds all that authority. And I believe the centurion, by faith, knew and understood that. He realized his position. He realized his position both in terms of earthly authority, but he also understood how the spiritual hierarchy worked too. And he saw exactly where he was. And he saw exactly where Jesus was. And he knew that Jesus didn't need to come. He didn't even need to be there. He understood that the sovereignty of Jesus transfixes everything. It it endures over time, over distance, over location, over culture. All Jesus had to do was say the word, and in another culture, a different kind of person would be touched because of the authority of Jesus. And then we get to Jesus' response. By the way, this is only one of two times in the scriptures where it says Jesus was amazed. We were up in Sedona... Uh, last weekend for a conference, and they, the presenter played a couple of clips from the the visual Bible. They had the happiest Jesus in there. That guy was smiling all the time. Yeah. And like Peter, Peter's walking on the water, and Jesus is there, and Peter comes out, and he starts to slip down, and he kind of bursts out laughing I'm like, hey, <laughs> we're having a good time now. And I thought, I hope that's how Jesus was, because it sounds like it's, it's like a great guy to hang out with. Just smiling and just enjoying being serious when he had to, but you know what? We don't see the smiling Jesus much. I know there's the laughing Jesus, but you know, Jesus is amazed here. What did his face look like? I, I don't think that was it, but he was amazed. So much so that in both of these passages, Matthew and in Luke, that is a highlighted feature, that Jesus's response is kind of like, oh my gosh, I'm like, wow. This is Gripped him because something astounding has happened here, and he wants the entire crowd to know exactly what it is. Listen to what Jesus says. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, who, by the way, he's just come from a teaching time where there was a huge crowd and they're following him, and he turns to the crowd, mostly Jews, and he says amazing words, doesn't he? Now consider, he made it quite clear I've come to the house of Israel, I've come for the Jews. But he turns to them now, and he says, this is amazing. This guy gets it, and you guys don't. This guy's got the big picture. Y'all have missed it. Listen to what he says in Matthew. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed, and he said to those following him, Truly, I tell you, I have never found anyone in Israel with this kind of faith. And I'm talking to all your people behind me. And then he goes on to say in Matthew, I say to you, many will come from the east and the west and take their places at the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the subjects of the kingdom, speaking of Israel, will be thrown into outer darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yow! Then the passage goes on and it says in in the Luke passage, the men who had been sent, returned to the house, and found the servant well. In the Matthew passage, Jesus turns and says, go, because of your faith or because you've believed, this has been done. It's done. It really did take a word. It's done. Now, isn't that an interesting word? It's done. Not like, well, okay, now let me say some spiritual words here and then things will happen. No, it's just like, done, finished, complete, healed. And they get back, and it is done. i got to tell you, this is a man of amazing faith, this centurion. He's in a different culture. He's in a different place. He's far away from his home. He's with people that are very different than him. He's got a pretty tough job. He's in charge of all kinds of people who have tough jobs. It's not a happy work environment. And yet he somehow has managed to embrace a faith in God so that he recognized who Jesus was and he understood that something big and good was happening here. What made his faith so powerful? Why was Jesus so amazed? What was at the core of what this man possessed? Let's pause for a moment. And I'd like you to ponder a passage from the Psalms. Let's listen to it together, and then let's have a time of worship. And if you'd like to come and take communion at that time, the table will be open. As Cameron leads in worship, if you want to come up and break bread, God has made his provision for all those who believe. Through Jesus' broken body and blood, it'll be right here. You can come up during that time. There'll be time at the end as well. Let's let's watch the video. Oh Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me.
1: You know when I sit down or stand up.
0: You know my every thought when far away.
1: You chart the path ahead of me. And tell me where to stop and rest.
0: Every moment you know
1: where I am. You know what I'm going to say, even before I say it, Lord. You both proceed and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge knowledge is too wonderful for me. Too great for me to know. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the place of the dead, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning. If I dwell by the Father's ocean.
0: Even there, your hand hand will guide me, me. and your strength will support me.
1: I could ask the darkness to hide me, and the light around me to become night.
0: But even in darkness, I cannot hide from you.
1: To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness
0: darkness and light are both alike to you. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body. And
1: knit me together in my mother's womb, Thank
0: you for making me so wonderfully complex.
1: Your workmanship is marvelous, and how well I know it.
0: You watched me as I was being
1: formed in utter seclusion.
0: As I was woven together in the dark of the world. You
1: saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How
0: precious are your thoughts about me, oh God. They
1: are innumerable. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up in the morning... You are still with me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. And lead me along the path of everlasting life. Psalm one thirty nine. Did you see in the video the stars turning so we are smart enough to know that we're actually turning and not the stars we just have to look out and remember oh that's the God that we're talking about here who knew us before we were before we were and when we sing things like you're worthy and we bow down to you it's a pretty amazing big God that we're we're talking about. So let's take some time. Mm worship Next time we sing that part, will you put your hand over your heart when we sing this is holy ground? You are good. You are good. And your love endures. You are good. You are good. And your love endures. You are good. You are good. Upon that ancient day The priests were overwhelmed Because your glory came You are good You are good And your love endures You are good you are good, and Your love endures. You are good, You are good, and Your love endures today. You are good, You are good. You are good and your love endures today. A sacrifice was made And then your fire came They knelt upon the ground And with one voice they pray A sacrifice was made upon the ground and with one voice they pray You are good, you are good and your love endures You are good, you are good You are good and your love endures today You are good you are good and your love endures You are good you are good and your love endures you are good you are good You are good, you are good, and your love endures. You are good, you are good, and your love endures. You are good, you are good.
0: So is Jesus smart. Oh God, you have searched me and know me. You know my sitting down and rising up. You know my thoughts, my father. You search out my path, my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. There is not a word on my tongue, but behold, oh God, you know it all together. What did the centurion know? That God was all sovereign, all supreme, all knowing. He knew everything. Everything he needed to know about anything, he knew. He knew his servant circumstance. He knew his situation. He knew the heart of the centurion. And it begs the question, so what about us? Because, you know, this is one of those stories where we will hear very different accounts where people encounter Jesus and they're dramatically changed. This man was changed before he encountered Jesus. In fact, he really represents many of those who grew up in the church and whose hearts were touched at a young age, who grew up with faith, and who understood the sovereignty of God, that God is good, that God hymns us around before and under and above and around. He's all around us. And he knows our needs. He knows. This is not the person who's going to get up and give a smashing testimony of Release from some horrible thing, it's going to be a man who says, I believed. And God filled my life and my heart with faith. And then I could extend that faith. And we see his faith working out in his actions, helping build the synagogue, ministering to the, the Jews of, of the land, even though he didn't have to. But more than that, the question, it begs the question, are we ourselves people under authority. Do we understand that? Do we understand that God is over us and we are under his authority? Do we understand how the mechanics of that work, that when we express our needs to God, he he knows them already, and it's his will that accomplishes those things? So was Jesus just a moral teacher, a spiritual person? Or, as Psalm 139, is he in all places through all places, around all places, everywhere, in every place, knowing all things. Because if he is, then we have to ask the question, do we as the centurion embrace the will of God? Do we make our needs known? Yes. But do we make them known understanding that it's the will of God that accomplishes them in our lives per his purposes? Because we are people under authority. And we understand that all God has to do, all Jesus has to do is say a word. It's done. As we continue to worship and break the bread and remembering God's sacrifice through Jesus, listen to the words of Paul in Colossians. This is Colossians 1. For the Son is the image of the invisible God. He is the image